I have the great privilege of talking to and learning from smart and creative and wildly interesting and inspirational people every day. And I want you to have that same experience. And so I decided to start interviewing them. And I want you to come along and listen and learn and enjoy with me. I'm your host, Phil Luce, and this is the Sample Bucket Podcast, where we learn all kinds of different things about people who own, operate, manage, and otherwise work in grain businesses. I don't know if I found grain merchandising so much as grain merchandising found me. I think I probably would have found my way to this world one way or the other. My guest on this episode is Duncan Ferguson. Duncan is part of a family farm and grain business in eastern Ontario, right on the border of Quebec. I haven't known Duncan as long as some of my other guests, so this was a great opportunity for me to spend an extended amount of time learning more about him. And one thing that really stood out is when you get him talking about something that he's passionate about, that passion is very obvious, and it's clear that he's a man who is highly dedicated to things that he enjoys and finds fulfilling, and maybe most importantly, finds of service to a community in some way. Hope you enjoy. All right, Duncan Ferguson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a little bit of geography. You're in the uh, the eastern end of Ontario and north of Lake Ontario, right? So kind of toward Ottawa and over toward Quebec and Montreal and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. We're actually a little bit past Lake Ontario here. Lake Ontario pretty much uh, ends at Kingston, and then we get the uh, the Thousand Islands and the Seaway Valley heading out towards uh, Montreal and uh, and the St. Lawrence Gulf there. So if, if you look on a map... Um, we're basically right, right, right on the border of Ontario and Quebec on the uh, south end of uh, of that little jut of land there, um, straight north of uh, New York State, about uh, about an hour north of Lake Placid for anybody that's familiar with that area there. And uh, maybe, uh, oh, I don't know, a little less than two hours from, uh, from uh, the Vermont border here. So really... Uh, Really interesting and nice part of the world, and depending on which way you travel, you can see uh, just about uh, any sort of geography that you want to see, except for maybe a desert. <laughs> uh, I'm not proud of this, but uh, it is just true that like many Americans, and, and especially Americans who don't live in a border state, uh, my my understanding of Canadian geography was was massively deficient until about 10 or 15 years ago when we started doing business in Canada. And since then, I like to think I've gotten quite a lot better, but uh, still probably not as good as it needs to be. That's yeah, that's true about enough. most I of mean, us. Don't could, uh, I was about to say, the same could be, say, be said about me. I mean, there's lots of places down south that uh, I kind of have to scratch my head and think, where is that again there? So uh, not, not a unique problem to the U.S., I don't think so. Oh, maybe not. That makes me feel better. But my father-in-law... Uh, he has a very broad concept of geography. And when he says up north, he could mean literally the county north of ours, or he could mean the North Pole. <laughs> it's all up north. So, anyway. uh, I mean, I say that about uh, Kevin Wilson's place there. You're, you know Kevin from uh, yeah, yeah. from uh, being a member of the company there. And I mean, yeah. he's uh, he's half hour to 40 minutes north of me here. So I, <laughs> I, I get that 100%. Up north. Now, you're on the border of Quebec there, but I, I have, just from context clues, uh, your name being among them, I'm going to guess you're not a Frenchman. 
not French, but uh, did actually do eight years of schooling in French. Um, mm. For better, I was going to say for better or for worse. I definitely thought for worse at the time, but um, uh, actually did all my elementary school in uh, in French at a French uh, French Catholic school. So, was a little bit of uh, an eye opening experience for me. Uh, if you can think of four-year-old me being dropped off at a school where I knew next to nobody. My cousin was the only person that I knew there, and uh, he's got French on his side of the family, so he was fine, but uh, I didn't have a lick of French to me. The only word that I knew in French was ketchup, because it was the same in English as it is in French, and I don't know why that sticks out, but I have a a very vivid memory of uh, me uh, being quite upset in the halls and to lunch, because the only word that I knew in French was ketchup. I, I, I think I had to be picked up from school that day, actually. So, uh, so no, I, uh, I, I am, I, I'd say function, bet, better than functionally fluent in French now, just mildly better. Um, I was a lot better when I graduated, uh, graduated there. I did a little bit, uh, kept it up a little bit through high school, but, uh, just with some other classes that I wanted to take, you know, shops and that sort of thing. I wasn't able to keep it up through the four years in high school and then uh, moved to Guelph uh, down in southwestern Ontario mm-hmm. for uh, for university and worked down there for a year. And uh, it's amazing. I mean, my teachers always told me that if you don't keep it up, you lose it. And I didn't believe them at the time, but it is absolutely remarkable how quickly um, you can lose a language if if you don't use it on a fairly regular basis. I basically had to reteach myself uh, French, and I'm still learning again here. Uh, spelling, I, I can stumble my way through it, but French is a complicated language. It's okay to speak, but you sit down and you try and do uh, vocabulary and your verbs in, in French, and oh my gosh, it's it's taking a little bit to get it back. What uh, helped me a little bit, uh, um, I've got some family extended family that uh, that are French, so uh, interactions with them the last couple of years have definitely helped uh, bring that back. And, uh, you know, we've got a good uh, uh, Franco-Ontario uh, customer base out here in Eastern Ontario, and uh, I do try to uh, interact with them in French to the best of my ability, and I'm sure they appreciate that there. So over the course of the last uh, 10 years or so, it's uh, slowly coming back to a place where um, I'd like it to be a little bit better, but it, uh, at least I can say, yep, you know, we're uh, a little bit better than functionally French here. And uh, actually, geez, 80% of my uh, my staff, we're a small staff, but 80% of my staff here are actually French or completely fluent uh, in French here. So just uh, goes to show with uh, what sort of uh, geography we're dealing with up here. So safe to say you're not stuck with an all ketchup lunch then if you go to a French only restaurant. No, no, <laughs> no. Um, actually, when I uh, go to Quebec to ski, I ski with uh, some of my old roommates from uh, from university, and uh, they're uh, they're. I mean, they did the core essentials that they needed to do to get their credits in high school, but. Uh, they hate it when they go out to dinner with me because I'll interact with uh, with the wait staff in French, no problem, and uh, they're completely lost. So um, <laughs> something I need to be conscious of anyways. All right. I think uh, like quite a lot of our customers up in Ontario, your business started as a farm and then 
is still a farm, but but also has added on a commercial grain business. Is that more or less right? Yeah, that's that's basically the gist of it. When you look at our uh, net revenues, so uh, half the revenues come from the farm right now, and half the revenues come from uh, the commercial side. So we're fairly balanced. We're still small enough that uh, we can uh, fit both enterprises basically under uh, the farm business corporations. So that we haven't quite quite gotten to that scale where we have to. Uh, separate the two businesses out but uh no we started like a lot of folks uh from what i gather uh started we uh we had a small bin set up here that my grandfather built in the 70s and the 80s and uh when my dad uh bought uh bought my grandfather out he added on to it started doing a little bit of custom drying for some neighbors um as some of the infrastructure around here grew and some of uh, our customers uh, built their own systems, uh, our volumes did decrease a little bit through the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, um, to the point that we were basically serving two or three customers when I uh, came home in uh, 2013 and then uh, did a 180. We're still uh, a fairly small facility, but uh, we've got uh, well, we've got quite a few customers that roll through here now, anyways. And uh, it's uh, it's an ongoing venture, anyways. What do you attribute that turnaround to? From losing farmer volume I, to increasing it. I think it was just uh, just the need. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a two-part conversation I, I always enjoyed doing the merchandising and um, just general aspects that uh, that go hand in hand with the operations in the fall so we just started doing a little bit more here and there um, I've always said from the onset that Eastern Ontario is a terribly undercapitalized area when you look at some other parts of the world there's not a lot of infrastructure to uh to receive and uh look after the size of crop especially the corn crop that we have out here um so there's always been a need and then uh, in 2017 uh the agrimark which would basically be our ag retailer down the road from us five minutes south of us uh, they decided to exit the uh, the grain business. Um, they weren't a large facility by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, that was the uh, the turnaround moment for us, where it was uh, basically go uh, do it 100% or don't bother doing it at all, and um, all by the heart horns, and we're working on it here now. Are you growing more corn there than you did? 20 years ago or whatever the right number of years is? I, uh, I'd say, I don't know if the corn acreage has changed that much. It's likely up a little bit, but I think mm. what the, uh, what it's two parts to that one. Um, we've gone from basically 160 bushel uh, average to uh, 200 plus bushel mm. average in this part of the world. So you've got, you know, a fairly sizable increase in yields, and then you've got a changing, uh, a changing um, a landscape here where we had a lot of 
smaller livestock operations that have uh, either sold or uh, gotten right out of the livestock and are strictly doing uh, crop production now. So a lot of that that would have been fed to cows or you know, there was even a couple of, uh, of big barns around here that uh, you, know, you just don't have that uh, that use for for the corn anymore so that gets planted to corn or uh, or beans and uh, ends up in either our export markets our feed markets or uh, or our ethanol markets up here that seems to be the story of the northeastern corner and southeastern corners northeastern united states and southeastern corner of kansas is that a lot of these small livestock operations have consolidated or moved somewhere. We see the same thing in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, New York, Vermont, and so on. But I guess it makes sense that whatever economics are driving those decisions would be no different in Ontario than it would be in New York State, for example. And, you know, we've also, we, we still have a lot of really viable um, land that uh, that hasn't been brought into production it would have been farmed at one point in time or another but for various reasons uh they they were let go and there's a lot of that land that's just come back into production the last 10 15 years here now and uh we see a continuation of that uh, uh I, I can think of geez more than a handful of projects just in the south end of the county right now so uh as that land uh, gets brought back into uh, production, it's uh, it's going into corn and soybean acres. It's not going into into pasture, and it's not going into into hay. So um, you know we're uh, we're definitely a growing part of the world right now. It's good to be somebody with the the desire to provide service and some merchandising skills in an environment like that. That's a target rich situation. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know we're we're still a long way from fully capitalizing on that. Uh, I think I've mentioned to you before we uh, our facility gets turned over quite a bit. Uh, we're still on the uh, catching up to the volume that we're putting through uh, the elevator side of the curve, but uh, we'll get there. It's been a process, and uh, it's going to be a process moving forward to to try and get on top of that and capitalize on those opportunities that are out there right now. So do you guys have a plan or a dream maybe of expanding handling capacity and space and all of the above? Is that, that sort of in the in the future for you guys? It's in the pipeline for sure. Actually, that's one of my winter projects right now to sit down and put, uh, put some numbers to it anyways and just uh, put a little bit more concrete plan into action here. Um, we're doing really well on servicing some facets of uh, of our customer needs right now but uh receiving capacity in the fall especially for corn um that's something that uh, we still struggle with around here and uh i uh, i'd love to get on top of it but uh, it's a process <laughs> yeah it is especially at seven percent interest that's a bad so exactly whole, whole other... Yeah, and I mean, for us, drying capacity is one of the bigger issues. Uh, we've been really fortunate the last couple of years to see some uh, 19, 20, 22% corn uh, come off right off the field, but uh, it's been, uh, there's been years that we've been well above 25%, and uh, it just slows everything right down there, and um, it's not fun when uh, when you have to turn people away and say, you know, just 
give me a little bit and we'll get caught up and we'll be able to start dumping again. That's uh, it's not a conversation that I like to have, but uh, it's uh, reality of the day right now. Yeah. What um, are you guys in any other businesses? You farm, obviously, and you've got grain handling. Do you do anything else? We're doing uh, seed sales for a little bit for uh, for an IP uh, seed processor, but um, I saw the I saw the writing on the wall pretty pretty early on that uh, my energies were better uh, better spent focusing on merchandising and uh, and that side of things. Um, the revenue opportunities were. Uh, so much better on uh, on on the merchandising and uh, and the services that we are able to provide through the elevator. Never mind that uh, trying to deal with everything that was coming at us in the fall at the elevator and getting out on the road and knocking on doors to uh, to make sales calls for seed. It was uh, it was just too much, really, and. Uh, uh, it just got to a point that I wasn't enjoying it anymore, and uh, I kept it uh, uh, up until my brother uh, joined us full time. Asked him if he wanted to uh, take it on. He said he really wasn't interested. So uh, we made the decision at that point in time that uh, we were going to let it go. We uh, worked with uh, a neighboring uh, a dealer for the company for a little bit, and. Uh, kind of helped him transition some of our customers over to him and uh that uh that was the end of that so happy to happy to be focusing on merchandising and uh on the farm operations now i love it decisiveness and focus are a couple of things that were drilled into me pretty hard at a young age and yeah. <laughs> i'm a big fan all right and, so uh, i should mention i uh I should mention uh, that uh, we do do a little bit of maple syrup here. My brother mm. does a little bit of uh, maple syrup in conjunction. We're in partnership with uh, with our next door neighbor. Um, he uh, they tap. Uh, uh, he could tell you the number of trees that we tap. I call it 20 acres worth of bush. Um, <laughs> I couldn't tell you how many taps he has there. But between the two of them, um, they've got a fairly sizable, uh, pretty well borderline commercial operation that they uh that they run next door to, to us here what's the approximate I, I know nothing about maple syrup other than that i enjoy it uh, approximately <laughs> how, how long is the process from the sap coming out of the tree to the the syrup in the bottle about how long does that take oh uh a day or so i okay uh, he, he could tell you better but uh you're collecting on a daily basis, bringing it up to uh, up to the uh, up to the boiler, and uh, they're running that uh, pretty constant. I don't think the sap sits uh, very long at all. It's uh, through the boiler, it's barreled, it's bottled, and it's uh, it's gone. So uh, pretty uh, pretty short turnaround. And for him, I, I guess I kind of liken it to uh, to drying corn. He'll uh, before they put a, a larger capacity. Uh, uh, evaporator in there, he'd be uh, he'd be boil, boiling syrup up until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night to get mm. through what they'd collected that day. So really, no different than uh, than drying corn for uh, for us. Yeah, but it's I guess it's not much of a there's not a lot of processing really to be done then. So it's not a complicated procedure. No, no, no. run it through the evaporator and then. Uh, through a couple of uh, sieves and filters to uh, 
to uh, filter out anything else that's coming up with it, and uh, a lot of their uh, a lot of their syrup goes straight into barrels and uh, into the commercial market. They do uh, quite a bit of, um, I guess you'd call it farm gate sales uh, there as well, but uh, a lot of stuff just gets uh, put straight into a barrel and uh, loaded onto uh, to a van, and away it goes. Is there are there family benefits to that? Do you just get to skim off the just go next door and <laughs> I get usually all the syrup get a bottle or two of uh, okay. usually I get a bottle or two of maple syrup, but uh, that's that's the extent of it anyway. Oh. So I would think <laughs> unlimited maple syrup would be a, a huge perk, but anyhow, I guess that's <laughs> a guy can dream. <laughs> probably... A guy can dream, and uh, we think that commodities are fairly dear right now. That uh, maple syrup uh, market is even uh, even worse right now. If uh, if you go back a couple of years, and um, I'm sure I could still find this article, there was a hoist a heist out of Quebec somewhere where somebody had actually uh, skimmed off the top of a uh, fairly large, I don't know if you'd call it a co-op or, uh, anyways, uh, one of the marketing boards type things out there that they have for maple syrup. Well, it turns out that some guys that were involved with that organization were skimming more than a couple of barrels at a time and uh, making, uh, I wish I could remember the final figure that they figured they had lost but it was just absolutely astounding how much these couple of guys had uh, made away with in a very very short period of time i'm uh, i i think firm on crime is is an important stance and we ought to be we ought to pursue justice but of all the understandable crimes I mean, yeah. stealing fresh maple syrup has got to be, I mean, you, you, you get, maybe you don't forgive, but you understand. Okay, I, I get oh. it. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. But again, that's out in Quebec, and things are a little bit different in Quebec there, too. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, I'm sure. But <laughs> anyways. I, I don't know what our Quebec I've said it before, so. I, I don't know that we have extensive Quebec listenership to this podcast just yet, so we, we may be... <laughs> I was surprised by that sort of thing. We we might be all right for starters. Yeah. Uh, all right, that's good to know. I I have this habit of of zooming out and kind of trying to look at the commonalities of things. And and of course, if you zoom out far enough, uh, farming and the the commercial grain business looks pretty well the same in Ontario or Australia or United States or you know Western Ontario, Western Canada, Eastern Canada, Western U.S., Eastern U.S. Of course, there are a lot of a, a lot of market idiosyncrasies and types of crops grown and types of markets sold into. But if you back up far enough, it's essentially the principles, the governing principles are, are the same. So I'm curious from, since I'm that zoom out guy, what, what is something about farming or the grain business or both in Ontario that, that you believe is, is fairly different from other places and, and that people would be surprised to learn if there's anything like that. And to be honest with you, I don't think there really is anything that's that unique to our region up here. Um, I was reading your email this morning Mm -hmm. where you basically said, uh, you know, your problems aren't unique and it's, it's, it's accurate. Um, Grow corn, soybeans, a little bit of wheat up here. Our markets are 
basically the same as everybody else's market in North America. Um, we're heavy export on beans, which might be unique for, from uh, from some other areas in in the province and across North America. But uh, at the at the core of it, we trade U.S. basis. We uh, sell corn to ethanol feed export. We export soybeans. Not that much different than uh, than the rest of the world. You are a, a true individual, Duncan Ferguson, because <laughs> I, I've been in the business for for almost thirty years now, and I've heard a lot of things over and over again. But but without fail, the one that I hear from almost everyone, almost everywhere is, you know, right around here, it's just a little bit different. <laughs> Every, it's just a, just a, it's just a grain I, business thing that happens. And I gave you, I served it up to you in a silver platter and, and you gave me the answer that I frankly wanted deep down, but I didn't expect. <laughs> oh, and, you know, maybe there would have been well, a point in time I would have said, oh yeah, you know, our market's completely different. And I guess I am guilty to have said that, uh, not that long ago when, you know, every once in a while we get uh, traders coming up from southwestern Ontario and I say, oh, well, you know, they'll ne- never make it out here in eastern Ontario because <laughs> our market is just that unique. Yeah. It's really not at the end of the day. I mean, you, there, there's a few odd things that you kind of have to get your head wrapped around, but at the end of the day, once you get an idea of the market structure, um how some of the flat price buyers are going to work and uh, in in the environment, it's really not that much different than uh, than anywhere else. Wow. The one thing I will say is um, we have a tendency out here where a lot of our u- users will get coverage well in advance, and I'm talking six to eight months of an, mm. uh, in advance of delivery which might be a little bit unique to uh, some of the other areas that, uh, that you cover. But um, once you get your head wrapped around that and get in your mind that you got to be thinking well in advance and you have to plan your movement six months in advance, it's, uh, it's just like everywhere else. I have a, I'm, I'm going to tell a story and I don't know if the person, the stories about listens to this podcast or not. So I'll, I'll, if listen, we can both get in trouble. So you've already gotten in trouble about the, you, you've offended a whole province. I'm just going after one person but on, on this there idea of, on this idea of it's different here. I think it was around 2008. I uh, was, was going up to central Canada to put on a producer meeting. And we, you know, I talked to the customer and we'd, we'd gone back and forth on some ideas of things we want to talk about in general. And some of the, you know, could put some charts together and things like that, local, local information. And, uh, got all that figured out. We're ready to go. About three days before the meeting, he called me and said, Hey, I just want, I just want you to understand that you're coming up here to Manitoba and, and things are different here. I just, I just need you to understand these, these farmers here, they're, they're just, you know, they're these Manitoba farmers. They're just a different breed. And I said, okay, well fill me in. I'm, I want to be ready. And he said, well, you just need to understand that these guys are really concerned that if they sell the price might go up after they sell. <laughs> well, oh my God. I don't, I don't know if that's, if I don't know if that's really different from farmers on some other planet and some other solar system, but so far, well, it's not, not that different from that very conversation. 
<laughs> I was about to say, I'm pretty sure I had that very conversation this morning with somebody. So yeah. Anyway, that's a. I, I think that is a really useful uh, a useful outlook. Is that we we are con- I don't know if conditioned or just inclined naturally yeah. to think that our problems or our challenges or our fears are are specific to us and nobody else has deals with everyone else got this stuff all figured out or they don't even worry about it but of course just it's just not true but that's a i'm i'm so people are going to think we planned this but i'm i'm so happy that you answered that way that's amazing i did not expect that at all i'm very very happy that you answered that way there we go no no problem at all and i mean there's a few little unique oh, of course out yeah, here yeah. in east yeah. ontario when it comes to uh uh you know i mean we market in dollars per ton mm-hmm. um which is unique to even ontario uh the rest of ontario talks yep. dollars per bushel um <laughs> once upon a time uh an old classmate of mine from uh, from Guelph. He's a trader for. Uh, uh, he's over at an export house there now. But anyways, he's from Eastern Ontario uh, as well. And we had come up with a list of you know checklist of things that you needed to know if you came out to do business in Eastern Ontario. And it was all about nomenclature. You know, yeah. you, you got to talk dollars per ton if you're talking flat price. If you're talking basis, okay, then that's fine. You're talking dollars per bushel now. Um, <laughs> if you're talking spray and you're talking uh, gallons per acre, unless it's product, and then you're talking milliliters. Uh, it's just odd yeah. little idiosyncrasies like that that maybe make our uh, little corner of the world unique. Uh, and you know, even unique compared to heading east into Quebec, where everything's uh, metric, and even I kind of have to sit there and scratch my head and think, "What the heck?" But um, <laughs> other than that, it's uh, it's just like everywhere else. Sure. I, the first time I heard someone express grain in tons, and it wasn't even a price; it was just a quantity handled. Uh, was before I think before we had any business in Ontario it was years and years ago in Waco, Texas. And they okay. said, how much grain do you guys handle? And he told me how many uh, million tons of something they handled. And it took me, you know, you do some quick math anyhow. So <laughs> there's, there's and and that is different, but it's a, it's interestingly enough, if you if it's uh, if it's different about Ontario, it may also be different about Texas. And and when actually when you said that your buyers get stuff bought, get covered out six or eight months. Uh, I thought immediately of some of our customers who sell into the chicken feeding market down in northwestern Arkansas, where that's a, you know, it's, it's not that common in Iowa, but it's, but it does happen fairly commonly in, in southern Missouri and Arkansas. So it's, it, it, yeah, and that's, uh, that's kind of reverse for up here. Yeah, that's reverse for up, uh, for us up here where our feed trade will actually be a little bit more hand to mouth than, uh, than what it sounds like it is down there. Our feed trade is where we go when we need, uh, a spot mm. sale, but uh, if we're in the quote-unquote industrial market, the ethanol um, or cornstarch or whatever else, then yeah, they uh, they get their coverage on really early. I mean, I was talking to our buyer at the uh, at the ethanol plant um, earlier this week. They're out of the market right now for old crop corn, and they're uh, you know they're shopping around some Nov-D onward type uh, type of uh, bids. Yeah, that that varies widely from one market to the next. So I, I guess it is fair to say that any local market has its has its characteristics, its personality. Uh, but to, to your point, if you if you back up a little bit, the underlying principles are the same. Well, let's uh, shifting gears here a little bit. I, I 
I don't know a lot about social media other than Twitter. I have a Twitter account, and I think it does help me stay connected to some of our customers, but also to just the market at large. You know, you can you can hear from trader types on there, and of course, lots of farmers, including apparently every farmer in Ontario. It's really something. But <laughs> uh, but, but plenty of farmers from different places, and you know, there are some ethanol buyers on there. There are some straight up futures trader types. So anyway, I, I find some value in in seeing that broad slice of the industry and but i don't have other social media so twitter is what i know about but but it seems like that you are fairly active in in twitter at least and maybe other social media uh and i'm curious is that is that something you see predominantly as um i don't know what the right word past you know is, is it fun or do you see or do you find some value to your business or your personal life or what just in, in general, what, how, how do you think about social media? I think it's a combination of everything that she said there. And I mean, um, I didn't, believe it or not, I didn't get on to Twitter voluntarily. I uh, <laughs> I was basically told that, hey, you need a Twitter account because you need to promote this. And I was uh, working, uh, volunteering for um, College Royal Society. It's an open house that uh, we put on. Um, every year at uh, at the University of Guelph, I was uh, on the executive at the time when uh, I think it was my last year up there, and uh, our president basically said, "Hey, you know, everybody needs to get a Twitter account, and you need to promote the heck out of this, and get a good uh, bunch of people coming out to uh, the event." So I thought at that point in time, "What the heck am I ever going to use a Twitter account for ever again in my life?" <laughs> Um, and fast forward more than a couple of years later, and uh, geez, I, I wouldn't say that I use it daily, but uh, I definitely peruse. And at the end of the day, it's I predominantly use it just as somewhere to go to uh, have a little bit of fun, have a chat with some folks that uh, you normally wouldn't see on a mm. on a daily basis, and. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's some professional benefits there too. Um, you know, there's a lot of agronomy types that uh, they've provided some really pertinent and uh, relevant, timely information on there that uh, was quite useful. I'm thinking, you know, a lot of our ministry staff up here in Ontario, they all had a Twitter account once upon a time and were very very active. And you know, you talk about um, how uh, prevalent. Um, the use of Twitter is up here in Ontario agriculture. And I, uh, thinking about it now, uh, I think a lot of that credit got, has to go to um, some of those ministry folks that uh, were very, very active through, uh, I'm thinking that 2011, 2012 onwards to maybe 2015 uh, timeframe. And they did a lot of ex not extension work, but a lot of outreach through uh, through Twitter, and uh, they gained quite a bit of a following through uh, through that time frame. Most of them have now retired or are doing things in uh, in the private uh, private industry world. But uh, I almost wonder if that's uh, why we have a maybe unique. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it a cult, cult, cult uh, following uh, or cult <laughs> culture up here, but uh, um, 
Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. And it's definitely evolved into, uh, we've got a really great bunch of uh, people that uh, I interact with on weekly if not daily basis that we just have a whole heck of a lot of fun every once in a while somebody gets into a little bit of trouble here and there but at the end of the day it's 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 all good fun at the end of the day it's only twitter (laughs) exactly yeah well uh many thanks to twitter uh i know more about you than i would probably know otherwise that isn't related to the grain business and and so a few things here um i'm if if you use a generous enough definition of the word, uh, may, I'm a musician, but you have to use a pretty pretty de- pretty broad and generous definition mm. of the word. But but anyhow, by by some by some generous definition, I'm a musician, and it turns out that you are too. Yeah, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I, I got to tell you, I I started out playing bass. I played bass for many years, and that's not an overly offensive instrument to play and i i sort of dabble with some stringed instruments guitar and ukulele and i you know i can sort of make things that sound like music uh a few years ago though i i ventured out into the world of banjo and Mm -hmm. that's the first time i realized that that um practicing music could really alienate you from your family (laughs) the the banjo is sort of I mean, until you learn how to do it, even after you learn how to do it, you could argue it's still offensive to your family. But uh, <laughs> when, when you're when you're learning, no one's happy when when you're learning the banjo and trying to figure out how to turn turn banjo sounds into music. Nobody in the vicinity is happy. But I'm willing to bet that if people <laughs> if people had to choose whether they wanted to hear someone learning the banjo or learning your instrument of choice. Uh, they they would they would probably become more friendly to the banjo instantly. So so tell me about the bagpipes. Yeah, like you said, I play the bagpipes. I've been playing for uh, oh geez, twenty odd years or something mm-hmm. like that now. And I think you're one hundred percent dead on there. I took my bagpipes up to university and uh, I had them in residence with me, and I had a little spot in the basement of uh, of our hall that I thought nobody could hear me and I mean the basement tucked away next to a utility closet great big steam boiler and everything and I thought for sure I'd be drowned out well turns out I wasn't and uh, we had the uh, uh, residence assistants come down and uh, tell me that no I couldn't practice in the <laughs> building so that was uh, that was the end of that thankfully uh, my residence was uh, right next door to to a, uh, a golf course, so uh, by the time March came around and uh, things started to warm up a little bit, I got to uh, go outside and uh, practice where uh, where the bagpipes probably ought to stay, and they're a lot better appreciated <laughs> from uh, from a distance away. But uh, no, like I said, I've been uh, I started when I was fairly young, and to be honest with you. I think the first thing you have to understand about Glengarry County up here, it's a very, very heavy Scottish culture-influenced area. Um, whether they came over directly from Scotland um, following the Jacobite rebellions um, in 1745, I think I have the right century there, um, 
or there was a lot of uh, united uh, loyalists that came up through uh, New York State after the Revolutionary War and settled in the region, and a lot of uh, a lot of Scottish folk came up with uh, with that wave of emigration. That's actually how my family ended up here. We uh, we started out in New York State, uh, emigrated up with the rest of the loyalists, uh, settled in uh, Dalkeith originally, which is the north end of the county, and then made our way back to the Cornwall, which is the south end of the county, which is where my grandfather was born. And then uh, he uh, he bought the farm out here in uh, 60, uh, sorry, 59, I believe. But uh, lots, uh, lots of Scottish uh, influence uh, up here. We actually were actually the home of the uh, North American Pipe band championships, if you can believe that okay. there's actually a uh, a North American championship and the world championship held over in uh, in Glasgow. Um, I play with the uh, Glengarry Pipe Band. It's been uh, my home since I picked up the uh, bagpipes uh, when I was 12, 13, something like that. And uh, I've tried to uh, quit the organ, not quit the organization, <laughs> but uh, you know, take a little bit of a break here and there. And I think I've maybe had a grand total of a year or two off since I uh, started playing the bagpipes with them all those years ago. They always seem to uh, drag me back into the fold. And at the end of the day, I, I enjoy it. Uh, yeah, we we compete. We travel around. There's uh, Highland Games throughout uh, Ontario, uh, some into Quebec, uh, in upstate New York, um, and a few other places across uh, the northern part of uh, the U.S. here uh, that we do travel to. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I don't take it too seriously. It's uh, it's fun. I, I joke around uh, more often than I should probably that I do it more for having a beer or two afterwards with uh, with the other folks in the band than I do actually playing. It's just, uh, it's like Twitter. It's a great community. It's a great mm-hmm. chance to get out and see some people, do something else other than what you'd be normally doing on a Tuesday or a Thursday night and uh, have some fun doing it. Educate me a little bit on the specifics. We're, we're going to turn this into a music nerd podcast just for a second. Uh <laughs> I sent you one time a YouTube video of a lady playing blues on a bagpipe and your response was something along the lines of, yeah, we only have 10 notes, but you can do a lot. So <laughs> is, is a, is a, I don't, I don't even know. I don't know. Is a, is a unit called a pipe, a set of pipes? What, what's the, what is the instrument called? A set of pipes or okay. just yep. bag so pipes, but just, uh, just you're pipes, right. You know, yeah. we've got, uh, uh, three drones, and each one of those drones have a reed in it, and that's just all the drones are doing is they're uh, they're playing at a very at a constant pitch, or it's yep. supposed to be a constant pitch, depending on how you're blowing. Is if you have a steady <laughs> blowing, then yeah. your pitch uh, jumps around and moves around, and that's one yeah. of the things that we uh, we try. I work with uh, with a group of uh, not kids anymore, kids once upon a time, and a few adult learners that uh, we bring them into the organization and we start building them up, and that's one of the first things that uh, we try and teach when not just playing as a band where it's really noticeable, but even if you're going out and playing by yourself is mm-hmm. having very, very constant uh, blowing so that your pitch on your drones doesn't, uh, doesn't move around. Um, you hear, I'm going to say bad bagpipe playing, which is unfortunately most of what <laughs> most people are probably familiar with. I know there's been a few, um, really, uh, 
popular Netflix series that I just went, what the heck, where the heck did they find this band or this individual? Because that is complete, well, something. But anyway, <laughs> um, I think I've lost my train of thought there. I lost, uh, came off the rails a little bit we're, there. We're talking but, about uh, the, no, the, we do... the drone pipes and the keeping them consistent. That was, that was where we started. <laughs> and that, yeah, exactly. That's one of the first things that we try and teach it, uh, just, uh, you start uh, you start adjusting your blowing, and you get that really wonky, wavy uh, sort of sound to it, and then it affects uh, the chatter, which is where your fingers are and the mm. the actual notes are. And if you're varying your uh, your blowing, your pitch on the chatter starts uh, moving around as well, and that's where it's a lot more crucial when you're playing in a group uh, as a band that you hold a very constant pitch because we're constantly not changing but adjusting tape on the chanter to change the pitch of each individual note mm-hmm. and if you're not blowing the same every single time well then that pitch varies just a little bit and you know that's the difference between an entry level grade 5 band or you know a premier level grade 1 band uh, just it's one of the things anyways is the ability to sound as one um and just uh, have that uh, that control and uh that uh I'm gonna say knowledge but that's not the right word but uh control is probably the best word yeah. um over your instrument and then since um the the chanter i think you said uh mm-hmm. that's got that's where you are changing the notes and Given the nature of that, I have to think that uh, a bagpipe or bagpipes is in one key. Is that right? You're not you're not changing keys yeah, or, or right. with that setup. You can't now. So are there are there different pipes set to different keys then, like harmonica, or is it just all in the same key all the time? No, so you can swap some things around. You can swap okay. the uh, the rates out, or you can get a different pitch chanter to do different things on it, or you know the bagpipe that most people are familiar with um great highland bagpipe that's set in one key you can get something called kitchen pipes or shuttle pipes which is basically a smaller version you know maybe okay. a, a little bit of a different setup on how uh how the uh how the air actually goes in and out of the instrument um they'll be set to a different key and produce a little bit of a different sound um so you can play around it with it from that sense, but you're not going to have in a band setting, you're not going to have one person playing a key yeah. over here and somebody else. It's all going to be the uh, the same uh, setup, unless you're doing something really funky. I mean, there's some, uh, <laughs> some uh, pretty uh, there, there's some pretty modern uh, groups out there thinking, you know, uh, Red Hot Chili Pipers, not peppers, Red Hot Chili <laughs> Pipers. Um, they'll do some funky stuff on there and uh, mesh uh, mesh some bagpipes up with. Uh, with some pop uh, songs and stuff like that and do some really, really cool stuff. But other than that, uh, you know, that's uh, that's the exception, not the rule. I want to keep talking about this forever, but I'm, I'm afraid that if we talk about bagpipes or banjos any longer, we're, we will stop, <laughs> we'll stop listening. But when I see you in a couple of weeks, maybe we'll pick up this bagpipe conversation because I... Uh, mm-hmm. The, the banjo, at least the way I play it, has a drone string. So we've got that in common. There's one string, no matter what else you're doing, that's always playing the same note. So anyhow. Uh, but Really? Uh, I, I didn't yeah. know that. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll 
yeah, we, we can't we can't talk about these instruments any longer than we have without <laughs> without everyone just turning us off. So we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> we but, don't want that. No, we'll have a private conversation later on about all that. Uh, so a couple other things I've I've picked up from from perusing your Twitter feed over time. Uh, you're are or were a member of a curling club. Is that right? Still am. Yeah, still yeah. am. Actually, acting president of uh, of one of our clubs in town here. And I, I would have said that's a distinctly Canadian thing, but of course, the Olympics show us every every place has curling. And I think it's also <laughs> quite quite huge and uh, quite a big deal in, in some of the northern U.S. states. In yeah. fact, I did a farmer meeting in a curling club in Wisconsin several years ago, and it was it's just in this small town, a kind of a um, you know the building didn't jump out and slap you in the face. It was kind of just a normal looking building, but it was I don't know Tuesday afternoon or something. It just chock full we, we were having a meeting over on one side of it that was you know just sort of a meeting room type of thing but the other side was curling and it was just full of people curling it was amazing i never seen anything like it and i mean curling was dominated by canada through uh the earliest part of its existence i think you sure. could trace all the roots back to canada i'm sure scotland would love to uh claim <laughs> uh claim the origin but i think i'm a little bit uh hazy on my history but i think you could actually trace it right back to uh to canada and some of the uh some british soldiers that were posted overseas over here uh, likely even in ontario that uh the sport really got off to a start but uh um curling's probably one of our greatest exports if you want to call it greatest exports out of the country <laughs> anyone that's uh, most anyone that's established a fairly Oh, maybe that's too much of a generalization. A lot of places that have established a really top-end competitive curling program, um, they've taken curling coaches from Canada and mm. uh, worked with them. I'm thinking China. You know, China, China's really upped their program in the last 15 years or so, and that's thanks to uh, thanks to Canadians. Um, really fun sport. Uh, I'm actually uh, 25 years this year. I've been playing in some form or another, did a little bit of competitive curling through high school, not super high level, but we did have a competitive curling team in high school and uh, we did uh, make it out to regionals, almost uh, almost made it out of regionals and I can still clearly see the shot that I missed <laughs> to keep us out of that gold medal game, but uh, you know, that was... Uh, it was a long time ago, so I, don't, I try not to turn on it too, too much. Long time ago, but it sounds like it was... <laughs> It sounds like it remains very. Put present. it this way: the uh, one of the guys that I uh, I was playing with at that point in time is still a good friend of mine, and uh, still curl with him on a regular basis, just uh, regular league night here uh, here in Alexandria, and uh, he, uh, he he'll remind me every uh, every single opportunity that he gets about that open takeout that I missed that uh, cost us our title. So, boy, now do you? I, I don't know a lot about curling. I apologize in advance for any offensive question I'm about to ask, but uh, do you prefer to be the person who pushes the rock and then yells furiously at everyone? Or do you prefer to be the person, one of the people with the brooms sweeping away? Or do you like all that? Is it, and I don't even know, is, are those specialties or does everybody do all of that? If you well, you're, 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 you're almost, you're almost there. So the way it works is a four person <laughs> team, right? Yeah. Um, so you have a skip, which is basically the person that stands at the other end of the ice and uh, he's calling the shots. He's thinking mm -hmm. strategy, right? Um, 
and then you have a lead second and third or vice skip depending on where you're some people might call it vice or vice skip um so your lead they throw first they sh throw the first two shots um so you know your lead throws the opposition's lead throws and so on and so forth then your second their second okay. then you work your way all up to skip stones right so i right. played skip uh, the last number of years and to be honest with you I don't, I could play lead. I could play skip. It really doesn't bother me at the end of the day. I, last night, um, I was running, I was loading the truck here. I was running late for uh, my league, uh, my regular Thursday, uh, Tuesday night league. And, um, um, my third, uh, went out on the ice. I told him, go ahead. Don't, don't wait up for me. I'm going to be about a half hour later. So, um, and I just hopped in. I ended up playing third for, uh, for the entire night and absolutely loved it. So, uh, it's uh, it's it's just for fun at the end of the day now. I don't take it as seriously as I once uh, once did. So I'm just there to have a good time, uh, get a little bit of exercise, fresh air, and um, you know, sit around the table and chat with some folks after the game's all done and over with. And that's what it really is, and that's what we try and market it as is a great. Uh, it's another great social opportunity. Uh, we suffered a little bit through the uh, through the pandemic. The pandemic was really really tough like you know and i'm sure that's not unique to us i'm sure it's uh, a commonality for a lot of other sports organizations or social mm -hmm. organizations where membership just dropped and uh we uh we did better than uh, than we initially forecast through those first couple of years but uh we uh, we definitely had to dip into our contingency fund just to make ends meet through uh last year and the year previous to that um we're almost back up to a place where we were uh, membership-wise uh, directly before the pandemic. And uh, I have to give a lot of credit to uh, my team of volunteers that I work with there. Um, the Adult Learn to Curl program has been absolutely instrumental in bringing new people in off the ice, onto the ice. Uh, curling in general was in a lot of places, and our area too is no exception. Um, is thought as an older person sport. It's something that you do when you retire, and it's really not. You look at uh, competitive uh, elite-level athletes, and it's as grueling as any other competitive sport out there in the amount of training and endurance and strength that uh, the athletes have to put into it. It's like anything else. You get, in, you get out of it as much as you put into it. Um, when... The individual who started up our adult learn to curl program first came up with the idea uh, five, six years ago or something like that. Uh, I have to—I was dubious. I didn't think it was going to take off, but uh, it's been an absolute godsend. And the only thing that's really, really saving our club right now from uh, um, from having a very, very serious decline in membership as uh, as people age out or retire or just can't do the sport anymore. So I look at uh, even my board, um, a lot of them, they 80%, 75-80% of my board are folks that have come through the Adult Learned Curl program in the last, uh, the last uh, couple of years here. So it's been... Uh, a great asset for our, our organization. Well, I wanted to make a lot of jokes about curling, but you've, 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 uh, all I can do now is respect it. That's, a, that's an amazing, 
Uh, well, I'll tell you what, next time thing. you're up this way, hopefully you, hopefully you do make it up this way. Maybe we can have a mini white commercial event at the curling club or something like oh, that. that. I know that was, uh, a guy yeah. that's, <laughs> I, I, I think I could scrounge up a key to Inside the club connection. in Alexandria. I mean, we could get, exactly. We can get oh. a bunch of people out and throw some stones and then maybe have a drink or two afterwards or something like that. So that, that was actually one of my big questions is, do you have to wait till afterwards to have the drinks or does that happen while you're curling? But it sounds to me. Oh, I'd used to use to once upon a time but uh, like everything else insurance and liability have taken oh, a lot sure. of the fun away so we uh, we can't uh, we can't quite do that anymore at least not officially I, i'm uh as someone who only knows about curling what i see in the olympics every few years which is a lot of people in loud pants shouting at <laughs> a rock uh i'm i'm you, you've intrigued me i'm gonna i'm gonna make a serious effort to get up to the curling club and see what I can do. I like that idea. I like Love that it. idea for sure. All right. One more thing from Twitter. Uh, lots of people mm-hmm. say, you know, you have some slogan or whatever and people say, Oh, that'd make a great t-shirt and kind of laugh and get on about their lives, but you make t-shirts. So, <laughs> so what's the, I think what's make the deal? is a fairly, I think make is a fairly generous term. I mean, it just started out as a joke really. And I think mm-hmm. I was thinking about this actually when we were setting this up, um, I think I, I I couldn't even remember at first how it started off, but I think I uh, I think I have to give credit to Angie Setzer. I was on one of her uh, one of her uh, Twitter Spaces or something like that. Post uh, post some USDA report, and somebody somewhere along the way said uh, inversions forever, and that was my very <laughs> very first T-shirt. I messaged Angie. I said that would make a great T-shirt. Um, or actually, no, somebody on the call said, uh, that would make a great t-shirt. So I, as a joke, I sent, uh, Angie a, uh, a DM and I said, I, I just, I went on the Vista print and I said, here you go, here's your t-shirt. Um, and then one thing led to another and, uh, I, uh, I had one printed out. I thought it'd be a great thing to take to, uh, one of our white commercial regional meetings. And mm-hmm. for a minute, I, well, I was, I was actually going to wear it to, uh, to, uh, master management last year until um, uh, border restrictions and all that sort of fun yep. stuff kind of sunk that plan. And I thought for a long time, man, you know, inverted forever, that uh, that's going to go out of uh, a fashion in a hurry here. And, uh, well, looking at the board right now, it's, yeah. uh, it's still holding almost uh, a year later. We are still inverted forever right now. So that was the first one. And then, a couple of things here and there have hopped out uh, at me, and I, I can't take the credit for everything. There's a lot of things that, you know, I'll, somebody might say here or there, and say I'll, I'll reach out and say, hey, do you mind if I put that on a T-shirt? And uh, a lot of folks have been real generous and said, yeah, go go right ahead. So I've got a collection of uh, maybe a half dozen or something like that that uh, a lot of fun. I, uh, I, I have to admit that uh, if I'm out and about in my... Uh, my t-shirt that I've made and uh, this is just out in the general public not uh, not with a merchandising crowd or anything like that and nobody asks me about my t-shirt I, I get a little bit disappointed I mean you know <laughs> it's there it's loud please ask me about my inverted forever t-shirt <laughs> well if you uh, if you wear it down here next week I think plenty of people have w- 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 at minimum they're going to know what it is and I, I bet you'll spark up a conversation <laughs> or two 
Uh, I've got a couple packed in my duffel bag already, so I think uh, I think one or two might make an appearance. So I, I can't do the entire collection. There's not enough days, but uh, I'll, I'll I'll pick some of the better ones for sure. We, we've scheduled in a lot of breaks, so you could change every break if you if you're super. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that actually came up. I, I somebody I think somebody actually suggested I do that, but I don't know. That's <laughs> a lot of effort. So yeah, it is a lot. It's enough that you went out there and made the t-shirt. That's that says something. All right, let's uh I've got some some uh rapid fire is probably they're not the right word, but that's sort of the spirit of it. I'll, I'm going to throw some questions at you here to wrap up and uh, to see what you have to say. So, first of all, uh how is the grain business different if it is in any way? How is it different from what you thought it was when you guys first started to get into it? I think that's just straight mechanism um you know we went into we had experience and i mean we've been farming a long time and i don't think this is unique to us i think a lot of folks that are approaching this from the producer level um don't understand how this is traded never mind you know especially up here in canada where we have currency and we talk dollars per ton rather than dollars per bushel just the mere concept of how our bids are structured and how everything revolves around a U.S. basis. Um, so for one, when you don't even have that foundation that, you know, you got to look at the U.S. basis uh, to really determine what your supply and demand situation is and then trade your way through it. Um, that was the biggest eye-opening moment for me. And I, I, I remember very, very specifically when that aha moment happened and I realized how other folks were coming up and putting the bids out that I just couldn't wrap my head around. How could they be outbidding the end user right now? And we're not talking by a little bit. We're not talking by uh, five cents per bushel. We're talking, you know, 20, 30 cents per bushel. Um, our ethanol plant went to strictly uh, pricing on delivery. Uh, contracts are U.S. basis only, and they're priced on delivery. So when they uh, took that route in 2012, it basically uh, meant that they were dealing exclusively with uh, elevators from there on out and was a little bit of a learning curve for all of us. Um, we weren't really heavy into the merchandising uh, scene at that point in time, but as we uh, grew into it, they actually brought up um, another firm. Uh, I forget if this was 2016, 2017, something like that. And they did a presentation to uh, to the commercial elevators in the region, a lot of us that didn't know exactly what U.S. basis trading was at that point in time. And they walked us through the process of this is U.S. basis trading. This is how you create a, uh, a basis position. This is how you trade a basis position. And that was the aha moment. And uh, I, uh, we, we, uh, we uh, started trading like that from there on out. And... Uh, I wouldn't say it was an immediate uptake, but uh, over time, the last, uh, what's that, six years now, we've gone from uh, back to back in 100% of everything that we did to, uh, um, I mean, I, I don't want to say that we, there's always a little bit of back to back that happens over sure. the course of a merchandise there, but, you know, we are basis traders at our core now, and uh, we, we've drank the Kool-Aid and we're believers. <laughs> I drank the Kool-Aid before I even knew there was an alternative to Kool-Aid. So <laughs> I, I had to learn, I had to learn backwards what the other things were. Uh, all right. Yeah, and I, I, and I, I mean, I don't know if 
like I think back to commodities and marketing uh, classes that I had in university, and it's an ag college that I went to, mm-hmm. but maybe I just didn't make the connection when I was sitting in that class. And, but it's just that methodology, it's not taught up here, and it's it's really too bad. And maybe I'm talking sideways here, but that's just my general impression that there's there's a gap that's not being filled in uh, in our post-secondary um, realm right now when it comes to uh, to merchandising and how commodities are, are taught up here in Ontario. No, I, I think uh, with a very few exceptions, that's, that is true everywhere or uh, everywhere in North America, let's say, you know, we, we know that the university of Arkansas, for example, teaches practical basis trading and we have some involvement with that, but in general, uh, I think most, most ag econ and futures and options classes are geared toward, information and speculation and not not to the commercial usage of them I, I don't think that's an ontario situation at all i think it's normal for better or worse i, I, I suppose on, yeah well on, i think maybe from a practical standpoint if you think about the number of people uh who, who are interested in basis trading as a percentage of the number of people who go through an agriculture program at a university it's a pretty small subset uh, at least in the way that you and I think about it. At least that's my that, that's no, my bias. Right. Anyhow, we're not going to. Don White tried to solve that problem for years, and you and I probably aren't going to solve it right now. <laughs> but but it is a problem, and we, maybe someday we'll see it change. Uh, well, yeah. Let's see what what. Uh, tell me about your worst day in the grain business. Mm. That's uh, that one's an easy one for me. Um, May 29th, 2019, and I remember this. It's uh, it's my mother's birthday, so uh, mm-hmm. it's etched uh, into my memory. But uh, you know, we were pretty young basis traders at that point in time. I like to say that you know we were familiar with basis trading long ahead of that, but there was a lot of stuff in the background that we didn't quite have our head wrapped around. And you know, it was I was looking up at the looking up the chart. For, uh, December 2019 corn this weekend uh, just uh, thinking about uh, this podcast and what we were going to talk about and you look back and that's really one of the first major quote-unquote rallies that mm-hmm. uh, that I had to suffer through now you look at the last two years you call the 2019 rally a rally it really wasn't I mean uh, we started out at uh, Three uh, three seventy three. Yes, corn was three seventy three not that long ago. <laughs> yeah. um, hard to wrap your head around that, but uh, we started out at three seventy three start of May, and uh, by the end of May we were up to uh, four dollars and sixty cents. And uh, you know, for the position that uh, that I had on at that point in time, I knew uh, I had enough to get myself up to four dollars fifty. And um, Anyways, we got up to that in a hurry. You look at that chart, and it's a pretty steep increase from about the 15th or so onward. It was uh, it was almost limit up for every trading session um, heading up until about the 29th, and then uh, there was one leg higher after that, um, and then it uh, it just fell right back down after that. But uh, that was my uh, that was my school of tough, tough knocks moment there, where uh, we uh, we had to uh, exit a bunch of positions. We uh, flatted it out, and um, you know we uh, we had some very, very profitable uh, 
basis trades on at that point in time. I can think of one in particular that uh, I had the buy. It was a good buy basis, and I had the sale, but uh, it was uh, was with a company that uh, wouldn't uh, wouldn't close the futures until we delivered. Mm-hmm. So I had the two ends, and we had made a fair chunk of change on that uh, trade, but uh, we had to get out of our uh, our futures positions at that point in time, and. Um, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, the sell is still a good sale. But uh, by the time we actually ended up filling that sale, uh, the market had completely changed. The landscape had completely changed. We had a, a late spring that spring, a lot of rain, a lot of corn that got planted late. So it got off to a poor start. And then an early frost in September that just turned, uh, I don't think we received. Well, there was some two, some grade two corn out there. But uh, virtually every single load of corn that we brought across here was grade five, 30-something-odd percent corn. So just really, really poor crop all the way around. That turned some good sales into some bad sales that that were underwater. We got everything covered off eventually, but uh, it hurt. And it uh, it was a learning experience. And uh, I remember turning to Dad uh, the day after on the 30th and said, you know what? I think I need to call you guys up, and that was the moment that I decided. Don uh, Don Rogers had had approached us uh, about a year before when you know we'd been trading with uh, with another company up until that point in time, and that was the moment that I decided. You know what? We need a little bit of help. We know what we're doing in general terms here, but uh, there's a lot of uh, behind the curtains, uh, back office administrative stuff that. Uh, I just need uh, a little bit of help to uh, get myself uh, set up properly. And uh, here we are a couple of years later after that. And uh, just, uh, that's the best decision that we ever made, but uh, definitely came out of uh, some pretty uh, pretty hard day. Yeah. But you know, it's hard when you can remember the details of it like that two years later and probably 10 years from now, you'll still remember that. Absolutely, hundred percent. I might, I might forget the numbers. I had to, uh, I had to look up the exact numbers. I knew four fifty was uh, was the number that I was good up to. Uh, that was mm. seared in my mind, but the rest of it I did have to look up. But uh, I'm not, uh, not forgetting that uh, anytime soon. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I, I talk like it was the end of the world. That it was a big position. That uh, you know we. We we lost insurmountable amounts of money. We didn't. You know, it was a relatively small mistake in the grand scheme of things. Um, didn't make much money on the on the commercial side of the operation that year, but it didn't sink us. We're still here. And uh, to be honest with you, if given the choice, I'd probably go through it again because that uh, that was such a teachable moment that uh, you know it's uh, it's definitely shaped a lot of how I've approached the market and my positions and uh, managing those positions here on out. I, you think of the rallies that we've had the last two years, and I don't know how I would have fared if I hadn't gone through that and made a small yeah. mistake at that point in time. You know, I mean, we're talking about uh, you know, a buck rally or something, less than a buck rally. Um, uh, different case when you look at what we've gone through the last two years here and uh you know we've been able to navigate those uh those rallies um while we're still trying to figure out a lot of the back office stuff making sure that we have uh, adequate credit facilities and that mm-hmm. sort of thing 
Um, but having gone through that experience, we were able to manage our position accordingly so that uh, we could get by with less until everything was set up and uh, in a place that uh, we're really comfortable with right now. Perfect. What uh, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't if you weren't in the grain business? But honestly, I, I think I'd be doing this just somewhere else. And I, I thought about this a little bit, but um, I I don't know if I found grain merchandising so much as grain merchandising found me. Um, I I think I probably would have found my uh, found my way to this world one way or the other, even if we hadn't been doing it here. I think uh, straight out of university, I, I was actually working for uh, for an elevator uh, and crop input supplier um, up in Guelph uh, for a year just to do something different other than uh, working here on the family business. So I think uh, either I likely would have stayed down there or moved home here and uh, done basically what I'm doing now uh for somebody else man that is that is exactly how i feel slightly different part of the industry but (laughs) i i i certainly didn't go looking uh for this career it it absolutely came to me out of as far as i could tell nowhere and and uh i it would have been hard for me to find it if it hadn't come and found me but i I like to think i would have found it somehow (laughs) anyway it's amazing what about uh, now? We, we already know about the the Glengarry Pipe Band and, and the Red Hot Chili Pipers, both of which I'll be looking up as soon as we hang up from this call. Uh, but outside I'll of look that, up the, uh, look up the Chili Pipers. They're, uh, uh, they're they're pretty good. You'll enjoy that one for sure. But I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I don't know if you listen to podcasts or read a lot or even listen to music a lot. But if you do, any one of those three things is there, or all uh, is there a podcast, a particular book, or particular music that you'd recommend to? anyone at all who asked oh to be honest with you i i don't listen to uh podcasts very much uh, mm-hmm. hopefully that doesn't burst your bubble nope, not or at all. Uh, hurt your feelings too much but nope. uh, i i just find my mind wanders too much that i just mm. can't stay focused on a podcast for a half hour 40 minutes uh what have you i actually tried to listen to uh listen to a podcast while i was refinishing my kitchen uh, a year or two ago there i was listening to uh the complete history of uh, the British Isles or something like that. And something that I'm relatively interested in. Mm. And I made it through a number of podcasts and uh, I just, uh, I, I found, I, I just couldn't remember what the heck they were talking about. <laughs> and I was lost the next couple of episodes anyways, just then it's, it's, a, it's just, you know, my mind wanders. I start thinking yeah. about this and that and, nope. you know, um, so that's, that's my, uh, my take on podcasts. I do listen sure. to a little bit of uh talk radio and news radio just that i i found that find that that just uh especially if i'm driving or something like that it's uh it's nice to kind of stay stay informed and every once in a while something that you know really captivates me that uh um you know makes you makes you think about the world i enjoy that but uh, if i had to come up with an answer i don't know if it's anything one thing specifically i i really do believe this that anything that challenges your point of view or your point of perspective or your perspective is something worthwhile that you you should pursue i I think too often we live in our own little silos and the world would just be a better place and i mean 
I listen to myself now. This is just sounding god awful, but I, I, I really do think that if uh, if folks uh, in general just took a minute to uh, listen, read somebody else's perspective, you don't have to agree with it at the end of the day, but uh, just go out and seek out somebody else's perspective. And to be honest with you, books on my bookshelf, aside from you know the fun stuff, the uh, murder uh, mystery type mm. thing or uh, or that sort of thing. If you look at my nonfiction part of the bookshelf, you'd think I was a, a completely different person. But no, at the end of the day, I want to know, I don't want to know, but I, I, I think I want to understand what makes somebody else tick. Mm. It just makes uh, hopefully develop a little bit more understanding and um, better worldview at the end of it. I I don't know, but uh, I think that's the best answer that I can come up with uh, for that right now. Anyways. I, I love that. I, I think it's um, even if, even if you know, you'll never agree with a certain point of view, although that's a strong statement, but let's just take it for granted. I will never mm-hmm. agree with X viewpoint. If you're interested in having a conversation with someone who has that viewpoint, you will earn the right to tell them how you see things if you can demonstrate to them that you understand how they see things. You don't have to agree, but if you can say, here's what I think you believe and be accurate about that, that gives you some right to then say what you believe, which I think is a much better way to have a conversation than just yelling at each other. So I'm, uh, oh, I'm, I agree. I'm 100% I, on board. I'm not saying, and I'm not saying I'm perfect in doing that. And, you know, no, of course I, not. I, I know I, I definitely have my prejudices and, uh, and everything else that goes along with that, but uh, I'd like to think that uh, I, I, I do try and see things from other folks' perspective uh, when I can anyways. Yeah, and just to clarify to you or uh, anyone who may be listening to this, as far as hurting my feelings by not listening to podcasts, I, I do <laughs> just in, in the, if, if, you were, if you were making a list of things that are Phil's identity, podcaster would, would be on like on page 12 of, of it would be a densely packed 12 pages before you got to podcaster so it's it's no no trouble at all you know, not, not gonna hurt my feelings in the but slightest I, I, I do have to say what you've put together here is is actually a lot of fun i did listen to uh to uh, some of the other ones there uh this weekend and uh you know what we're interesting at the end of the day and uh yeah, yeah. a lot of a lot of fun things that uh, that have come out in in these podcasts that you've done here. So uh, thank you for taking the time to do it. It's uh, it's quite a project, and uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's not hard work. It's easy to do. It's really, I think um, it's it's a it gives me a lot of pleasure to let people know that just like you said, everyone's interesting, and there are. Uh, people that work in the grain business are as much individuals as people that do anything else. And there's a tremendous range of backgrounds and interests and personalities. And I'm I'm sure, you know, we're not going to get into politics on this deal ever, if I have anything to say about it, but I'm sure there's a (laughs) tremendous range of politics, everything just, just across the board is we're, we're all, we're all individuals. And even though we have a great, great deal in common, there's a whole bunch of cool stuff that doesn't often come up, you know, in a, white commercial meeting or some other place that's that seems like it should get out there. Uh, finally, if you were talking to 18-year-old Duncan Ferguson right now, what, what advice would you give him? I don't know. Um, I, uh, 
I think I just have to say, don't don't rush. Enjoy the moment. Um, uh, give me a quick second there. Yep. Sorry about that. We've got uh, contractors working on our new scale room here, and he was just handing me the keys. So I guess uh, if we're not ready, we're pretty close to ready to moving into that. So oh, anyway, good deal. Um, sorry. Question. So you, eighteen-year-old uh, me. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Don't don't rush. Enjoy uh, enjoy the moment. It's not about making it to the destination at the end of the day. Um, and you know, I I was guilty as a lot of people are. I think of just trying to rush their way through school, everything else, and uh, you know, just trying to get done as quick as you can and be done with that part of your life. But at the end of the day, you know what? It's a lot of fun, and you only do it once. Mm. That's incredible. That is a, a perfect place to end. Duncan, thank you so much for doing this with me. This this is this is going to be great. I will uh I don't really edit these, but I'll polish it up. I'll throw some music on the beginning and end and and we'll have this out in short order and uh thanks a million it wouldn't be possible without you. No, and I appreciate you having me and to be honest with you when you first reached out I thought how the heck are we going to fill 40 minutes never mind an hour and i think we're over an hour at least uh before you edit this i think we're over an hour of chat and i didn't think we were going to make it this far so um yeah no had a lot of fun so appreciate you taking the time and um look forward to seeing you next week next week already down in florida for uh for master management absolutely absolutely see you then thanks a lot all right appreciate it thanks have a good night take care